knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Old Tom The King of Spring Galberry Joe No matter the name, his call resonates with hunters all across the United States. We're talking about the wild turkey, and this is the Talking Tom Podcast. Okay. All right, so we are in Casa de de Lee right now, and uh, we we have got a guest that uh, went down and terrorized Florida birds for the better part of the morning, and I was living vicariously through him. Uh, As always, I, I found an excuse not to be in the woods, but we talked for... An hour and 15 minutes off the air, and then you finally reminded me that I'm a podcast host and that we should probably record something. So <laughs> we're going to pick up the conversation right where we were, and I'm going to summarize our discussion because we bounced around about a lot of stuff, some stuff that you are not going to talk about, I'm not even going to bring up because I know it's coming on future episodes. Mm-hmm. But one thing I want to talk about is this theory of, of chasing dollars, not pennies. I'm, I, you know, I was talking to you. I'm an accountant, mm-hmm. and I believe that I should chase dollars, not pennies, because my return is better. And once I've accounted for all the dollars, we can decide what pennies we're going after. And in everything you were saying, I noticed a trend, and that trend is that there are things we could focus on as turkey enthusiasts to improve the population, yep. and the dollars are habitat, and the pennies are kind of everything else. Am I summarizing that pretty well? No, I would say that's a fair way to yeah. put it in the non-scientific terms. The, the redneckology? <laughs> yeah. I need I need to find a way to like trademark something that's like redneck science or something, right? Like the Yeah, I think that's trademark actually. Is it? <laughs> Probably. Probably is. There is some dude that owns the trademark for redneckology. I wouldn't be surprised, but uh, he needs to donate it to you guys. But <laughs> what having come through Florida, one of the things we were talking about was the fact that a lot of your research is done in areas that are in desperate need of attention. What do you surmise? Actually, let's encompass that. Why is that the case for you, for you guys, when you're doing research? Yeah, that I think is a, a, an artifact, I guess, of the way that we fund or the traditional model of funding research. So what typically happens in most most university uh, researchers partner with their state agency mm-hmm. and the state agency funds research which usually is on public hunted land mm-hmm. because they're using 
money that should be going to the public, right? So it's hard to justify doing a bunch of private land work with public dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's also often the thing that's spurring that research is concern. So what you end up with is you end up doing a lot of research, especially, uh, I think this has been the case on turkeys, uh, you end up doing a lot of research on big tracts of public land that we already have concerns about populations on. So that that's why that happens. And it makes a lot of sense that that would happen, but what happens, or, or the, the other consequence of that is then we we are not doing it on a large portion of the landscape in most of the southeastern states. Uh, Florida is sort of an outlier. We have a lot more public land as a percentage of our landscape mm -hmm. than, than the rest of the South does. But, uh, you know, the focus, we, or the data, coming from public land when a lot of turkeys live on private land. And people do things a lot differently on private land, really commonly. We often have younger forests, we have all kinds of other practices that are implemented competing interests that are not wildlife focused at all, mm -hmm. like agriculture or right. you know, just other right. things that people want to do yeah. with their land. And that's their business to do whatever they want. But the point is, you know, that can muddy our understanding of what's going on at population level in a state because we're often doing the research in part of the context and not the other part. So they, that, that kind of gives you a unique perspective. It comes with pros and cons. It, the, the con being is you're getting a limited sample size of poor turkey, relatively poor turkey habitat, um, which is probably useful because it's a crisis simulator, yeah. right? Well, I don't know that it's necessarily always poor habitat, but it usually is in populations we're worried about, which yeah. often is there, there's poor uh, habitat involved in lines, lines of concern. Well, I'll put words in your mouth. The the public land in Florida is terrible, and and so no. you shouldn't. You should. Shh. <laughs> I'm teasing. Um, but I mean, we. I mean, to, yeah. I think that we should give credit to Florida because they get a lot more fire on the ground. Yeah. Than almost anywhere else, and uh, you know they don't burn as much as they're they have planned, mm -hmm. they're behind, mm -hmm. but the Florida is the fire capital of the world. And that should be acknowledged that we get a ton of burning done and that is great for turkeys. Oh, it's, it's when we first talked, I told you about how the place you hunted today right. uh, has never, I mean, I've been here since 2017, 2018. It was not until 2020 that I saw, now it's, it's a fairly big chunk mm -hmm. of land, I won't go through the whole thing, but I never saw a burn until 2020, mm -hmm. and then suddenly you started to see yeah. annual burns, both uh, dormant and right. growing season burns. Mm -hmm. Number of birds have shot through the deer, for that matter. As we would expect. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I routinely bump coveys of quail now, mm -hmm. which is not something I'm used to, and every staking time it happens. It's a good indicator that you're making some yeah. turkey babies too. Poles are overlapping with quail a lot, and quail are the canary. Was it Goddard that kind of? Stoddard. Stoddard, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, memoir of a Naturalist, the Stoddard, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, did I earn brownie points by knowing, knowing that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tough crowd. 
I got it wrong. I guess. You remember them for uh, putting me in the middle of a bunch of turkeys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you had a good morning. It wasn't it wasn't Florida Public Land though. It was it was a private lease. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I catch the number one feedback I get is that I talk too glowingly about Florida Public Land. And I'm spoiled. Well, I think I think that should be challenged though, that viewpoint because you have a lot of public land that's accessible and a lot of it, I, I know for a fact, is pretty good hunt. Yeah. Compared to other places, like, you know, there should be some pushback to that. So if Florida's the fire capital of the world and we're talking about habitat, mm-hmm. do we just need more fire? Or... I, I, they they uh, often cannot meet the... The burning thing. The other thing that everybody realizes a lot of the public land, their focus is not to make more turkeys, they're burning it for alternative objectives. Okay. All right. That. It's hard to believe. I'm, I'm <laughs> I don't want to beat up on anybody, but why? Why is that the case? Well, just like, the, you know, look at the objectives of the agency and why it was formed. Okay. So the, the, you know, like uh, the the U.S. Forest Service has a, the their uh, objectives are for sustainable multiple use. I, I can't remember how it's phrased exactly, mm-hmm. but it's essentially that they're supposed to be used or sustainably managing for multiple uses. Okay. So that includes you know timber. It includes being able to let folks go out and turkey hunt. Okay. Uh, you know ride around, whatever you want to use that forest for. Obviously there are some limitations on that, but uh, it, it's, that is enshrined in that agency's policy of how, you know, what they're, what it was developed for and why they have the land. So okay. that's, that's what, but then if you go across different kinds of land, uh-huh. that what their mission is or their objectives that is enshrined in law often is different. So you see them manage land differently as well. So like park service, for instance, their mm-hmm. mission is very different. And in some cases, hunting is not even a part of that. In some cases it is, it just depends. It's interesting to me because I see fire as an inextricable part of our habitat. I read somewhere when I was in my undergrad that in Florida in the Southeast, with limited exception that fire is anticipated before pre-human. That mm-hmm. fire was not pre-human, but I guess pre-colonialization, however you want to look at it, the, the development mm-hmm. of, of America, that fire touched every acre about every seven years was the, the, the hypothesis when I was mm-hmm. um, in my undergrad. And so that imprinted very heavily on me because we have entire, enormous chunks where fire isn't there, and it just doesn't even dawn on me that... Well, it, would exclude it. There's some data that suggests that on average at the state level it was down more close, close closer to two year return. No kidding. Yeah. It, just at the state level, yeah. they start averaging the majority of the plant communities are fire dependent and there was frequent fire and in some cases it was more than once every two years. Wow. So in a lot, a lot of the landscape and we have a lot of Places they're trying to achieve a two-year return rule. That's but a monstrous know. reduction in fuel load, though, too, oh, right? Yeah. I mean, that's so. And all of the agencies, for the most part, I think all of them are are burning 
actively or trying to within their capacity. And they're also collaboratives with the state mm -hmm. and federal agencies where they're helping each other burn and we have all these burn crews that are bouncing around. I've burned with multiple agencies mm -hmm. myself, uh, with, both as a state agency professional. So there's a lot, but there's more that can be accomplished. Which is a good thing because it's probably indicative more of the abundance of land less than, right. than the resource being applied. Well, well I think it's, it's sort of contrasting. We have a way... We have a lot of land that we're trying to burn, right. so we're not meeting that, and that, that's good that we have that land and that objective to meet, you know, something that is really difficult. But on the other side, we don't, you know, we have uh, barriers to burning that include resources and stuff, so we don't meet the objective in some places. So there are areas that where we're meeting the objectives as well. What do we? So, in other words, they're, they're achieving their two-year or three-year return interval that their objective is. Have we quantified what kind of return from a wildlife perspective we're getting in those areas versus areas that it's three, five-year burn cycles? Is it? Yeah, it depends. I mean, there's winners and losers. But, uh, you know, for turkeys, the more frequent, for the most part, the better. Who are the losers? I've never, I've never considered that, that there would be a... Um, things that that uh, they're mesic species. I'm not familiar with that term. So there are some species that do better in a forest uh, condition that's not got being it. burned. You know. uh, but a lot of those, if we start listing them, are things that you don't necessarily want to love, mm -hmm. like raccoons and possums. Yeah, you are big anti-raccoon and possum people. <laughs> Dedicated weeks worth of podcasts to get... No, I'm kidding, but... That was well. It goes back to the pennies, yeah. versus dollars thing. Yeah. You know, but one thing that you get from a practice like prescribed fire is changing the plant communities into a less desirable state for things like raccoons and possums. So I may have had a redneck breakthrough here. Tell me if I'm right. Not only by introducing fire to the landscape, are we increasing the type of habitat that we need for turkeys and other associated game? and non-game species. But are you also saying that in effect we're trapping for, at the same time by reducing the habitat that's the ideal habitat to... habitat management is a very effective anti-predator strategy. So we're chasing dollars and pennies almost at the same time. We're kind well, of double The reason it's dollars is because you're adding because lots of pennies. That's crazy, I hadn't considered that. I hadn't considered the, the fact that, I just assumed that your, your raccoon population wouldn't suffer as Drastically, but you're right. Like your, your predators population, they start getting relegated into yeah. wet areas, which is where they should be. Do we have? And, wet, and turkeys don't nest in boggy areas. The, 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 they're not going to nest somewhere where the ground is wet. Yeah. So, well, the uh, that's not ideal. <laughs> yeah. I've seen some nests in some weird places, but uh, in general, that's undesirable for turkeys. So just by introducing fire to the landscape, are we, you know, in one of your podcasts, I think even today, you mentioned, you may have, or I'm conflating, I listen to everything that y'all put out. It's almost the only hunting podcast I truly tune into for every episode. Was it something like you thought when you were driving, you saw 3%? Am I making that up, 3% brood cover? No, the study, the Tennessee study measured it. Measured it. Okay, so it was a quantified, yeah. it wasn't just a... It was quantified as part of that study. For me... I would I would have guessed it was probably like something like that. 
Oh, that you know, my my observing yeah. things is pretty similar to that metric. That was the first time I'd seen it quantified. But then uh, we had Chris Mormon from North Carolina come on. Yeah, that was actually really that the North Carolina study is really unique because it is all on private land. Mm-hmm. There were two hundred private landowners involved in it across the whole state. Phenomenal. That's so huge. Great, great data set. But uh, the good news is it actually aligned with a lot of our public land data sets that we have in other places. Mm-hmm. The bad news is that ain't good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Why? Because the their productivity and the population is pretty poor. Mm. Okay. But then he said on the air that brooding cover was was essentially non existent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's practically not not available in the landscape. Right. Which is the reason I'm trying to fundraise to do stuff with Pult specifically because we have this big data gap. We mm-hmm. had Culture Chipwood come on, they they combed the literature and got all the vital rates and there's this gigantic gap mm-hmm. in the Pult knowledge because it's really hard to get data on that, that life stage. So I'm trying to take an alternative approach so that we can start to fill some of that gap. But it's, that's a technological limitation. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, just if you don't understand why we're talking about this little chicken nugget, you know, that, that mm-hmm. gets born, and then in just a few weeks' time, it's quadrupling in size. So it starts out being this little tiny thing. So we can, we have transmitters now that we can actually tag them with but the battery life can't last very long mm-hmm. so we could get the first several days or maybe even a couple of weeks of life but there's some concern even over whether or not we're affecting the birds yeah. with the transmitter even though it's tiny because they're so sensitive and then even if we do that we still have very low information after two weeks and we know when we do brood flushes we have an expectation in terms of the brood size per hen, and uh, we even had that state wide. The, you know, the other episode we did, uh, I talked about the brood survey at the state level. We know from a lot of states what that should be right there, and then we have a bunch of studies that are capturing birds, including ours in Florida, mm-hmm. where we have how many jennies made it into that winter flock, and those numbers don't match up. So something's happening in that gap where we don't have much knowledge. That seems like a really important piece of the puzzle. Critical. Yeah. We don't. What's we, we have a lot of researchers that are really great scientists that are trying to address different aspects of this, but that one has remained a pretty elusive gap because it's, I mean, I talk about it all the time, it's hard to address that gap. We have a variety of approaches that are, that are being tried, including some tagging. What I want to do is the illumination of the flatboats. I want to imprint poles. Expound on that for people because I guarantee you half my listeners have never heard of that. Well, you need to read that book. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Uh, illumination of the flatboats, really awesome story. Joe Hutto, great writer, and uh, has done some really cool stuff, but he hatched a bunch, he basically imprinted and hatched a bunch of poles, turkey poles, uh, wild turkey eggs, and uh, lived with them for a while, and 
wrote a book about it, and that was done right here near Tallahassee. A really awesome story. So what I want to do is do that same thing, except do it in an experimental framework where we can start to address these knowledge gaps, because then we don't have to put a transmitter on the on a wild turkey. We can just be mom instead. Mm -hmm. So we basically would have people that would have a brood, and then we would, the idea is that we could, for example, one thing that would be extremely useful, we could go and look at different ways that you could manage fields. Mm -hmm. We could manage them in different ways and then forage broods in different ones and then see how successful they are. And then I could give you really specific information on how you need to manage your fields to maximize brood success. Mm -hmm. Like that would be super helpful. Is probably not going to be in grass. <laughs> Spoiler alert. But I'm just saying, like, specifically, like, how do you get from where you are to where you want to be to yeah. maximize productivity? We know poles are dying. Mm -hmm. We have a very good idea of what that pole rear cover looks like, but then I can start getting at a level where we can operationalize it. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. So that, that's what, um, you know, those are the kinds of questions you can do with that. How, how much insight does that truly give you, though, from a, from a scientific standpoint? Because Schrodinger's cat, you can't observe something without, you know, changing it as you go, go through, through the process so by imprinting to humans do you feel like you're unfairly influencing there's there's always biases with any experimental design right but we get way better information on pulse than we have right now 
That's fair. There That's are fair. limitations. Yeah. There's no question. But there are some huge advantages. Sure. Sure. Like, for example, if you're, let's just say that we're going to have a wild hen and we're going to follow her brood around. Well, we have to figure out a way to do that without influencing her. But even if we don't, well, she may brood in 15 different places. Mm -hmm. Which one of those calls success? Right. Some combination of them, right? Mm -hmm. Which one calls failure? Well, that would be a little easier to identify because we know where they died. Mm -hmm. So, but even just observing that, trying to observe a hen all day long every day for the entirety of brooding is basically not mm-hmm. going to happen. So that's, some, you know, that's a limitation of trying to do something that way. Doing it with transmitters, all you get is a bunch of dots on that. Yeah. You can't do it with cameras. You could get really intensive use information of a spot mm-hmm. with a game camera. Mm-hmm. But even that, it's really hard to see poles. Like, you know, it doesn't matter which way you do it, there's going to be limitations. But you can get really intimate information and you can get it about specific things yeah. with that approach. And we have done that pretty extensively. Tall Timbers, uh, one of the major contributors, uh, imprinted, has imprinted a lot of chicks for quail. We have very good data that has come from that. Really? Very useful information, especially for understanding. Uh, reproduction and, and quail. So we already have evidence to support that this is something that is not... That is a, it's a very important piece of the puzzle. It doesn't solve everything. Yeah. And it gives us a, a lot of information about a data gap. How cool. That could have really powerful implications in terms of actions. Yeah. Like what is happening to polls? Where is it happening? Mm-hmm. How do we fix it? You know, those kinds of things are really useful. And if you read Joe Hodo's book, that includes predation. He had some predator and you know interactions during his pole rearing. Right. So, like we get a lot of great information about them. We can also start to get some basic biological things about them, like how fast do they grow? Do they grow at different speeds based on how you're mm-hmm. doing it? Like you know, there's just a lot of great information that can come from that. Plus, what I think would be super valuable about that is you can also basically video it and then I can show you like don't take my word for right. it here's what the pulse did and you can see where they're mm-hmm. see them doing that I think there's a lot of value even in that so that's a kind of a pie in the sky type of thing that I'm trying to do where do you where do you see turkey conservation headed right like given that you're not only intimately aware with what research is being done, where the emphasis is, but you're also working with a lot of these state agencies to see where their focus and emphasis is. How do you see the landscape progressing from from here? Like, where do you think the emphasis is going to be? What kind of maybe policy or or um, conservation shifts might come? Well, I think that this is a great question. You know, state agencies are. They are, I mean, a lot of people have this perception that they're against hunters or, you know, I hear that kind of stuff all the time. They're they're being funded by hunters to, you know, to serve hunters. Mm -hmm. Not exclusively. Sure. But that is a big part of their mission. You know, they're, so they're trying to make sure, and it's really, they're on a knife's edge to do it, 
you're trying to manage a resource sustainably. Right. Right? And part of it is killing the, the species you know, that they're managing mm -hmm. so, uh, with hunted species. So, uh, you know, that hunter satisfaction is absolutely critical part of that, and that's driving a lot of decision-making, is trying to figure out what can we do to make this sustainable that continues to have a hunter satisfaction that's high, and, you know, you have to think about what, what are their op options. So you see season frameworks change. They have options to do that. They can't uh, require private landowners to do anything, right, mm -hmm. in terms of habitat. You're, you're, you're uh, welcome to do as you please on your property within you know, some limitations, some obvious ones, but uh, like they're they can't legislate that you have to have good poultry and cover on your property. Sure. That's going to be an action that the landowner is going to have to realize they need to take and then be willing to do that and have the means to do that. Uh, but they can, if they see a problem, adjust season framework. Right. So you may see changes, and you have already in other places, uh, you know, changes like that. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to wield the one that they have. So uh, I think what we're seeing now, though, is we're realizing that there's issues and we're, there's clear evidence of that in several places. We do not have clear evidence in Florida that that's the case, but there is in other places. Uh, we're seeing more research being funded by state agencies. We're seeing alternative mechanisms of funding coming, you know, which is all great. We're seeing more research uh, happening in many states. Uh, Mike Chamberlain has said multiple times, I've heard him on the air and he said it, even when I've been around him, that there's more turkey research going on right now than any time in his career. Wow. Which is really cool. So, you know, you're, that's one thing you're seeing change that's in response to us realizing mm -hmm. there's, a, there's some issues. Uh, the episode that, that, well, I don't know where it would go in I don't know if it'll be out already or... If it, it'll be out after years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so it's already out. Yeah. Like, we just went through a whole bunch of landscape change stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, we... There, it's obvious that things have changed a lot, even if you don't think they necessarily have in your context. There's a lot of change that's happened across mm -hmm. the landscape, and it's not just hunting. It's a lot of other things that have changed. It's not just predators. Those are the two things that everybody wants to point out. But the reality of the situation is is a multifaceted issue. There have been lots of changes that have probably been undesirable at best for turkeys. So what I'm trying to do is spread awareness and information about all of that and then go through what, what do we have data on, what do we not. And I've been very open about that. I don't like... Uh, I don't like it a lot of the time, but it is what it is. Uh, but you hear people talking about these different ways to address the issues, and what we're trying to do on the podcast is basically give you the data and say, here's why, mm -hmm. here's where that's coming from, or, hey, this is a big hole in our knowledge. And we're talking about that a lot. We just had a, an episode recently the dominant gobbler hypothesis. Mm -hmm. I think you guys even asked me about that on 
We did. Yeah. So that that even what that is, you know, people think, oh, it just means there's a dominant gobbler. Well, we know there's a social hierarchy. It's yeah. not just limited to that. Question is, well, if you shoot that one, if you shoot the dominant one, mm-hmm. do we even know who he is? First of all, mm-hmm. is there only one? Probably not. It's probably a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, does it matter? Maybe, maybe not. You know, there's all all these different ways that you could slice that onion. Uh, but one of the things that was really interesting in the Alabama study that we just revealed was that a large portion of the gobblers, based on their collection, which based they came from hunter harvested gobblers, again hunters contributing to the research, uh, a large portion of them. In fact, I think it was 90% had testes that were the size that they sh- they're either probably or most likely or almost certainly based on size. There's different categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, 90% of them should be able to breed. They should be fertile. Okay. They're going to confirm that with additional analyses. So it's still preliminary, but uh, you know then it makes me wonder, okay, should we be worried about which one? Well, that's evidence that most of them have the capability of breeding. So it'd have to be a different mechanism if it matters. Mm-hmm. Right? It doesn't necessarily, that's the problem. Everybody wants that to just be the solution. But there's other mechanisms, right? So, well, uh, yeah, maybe all of them can breed, but behaviorally they could be suppressed from doing so because the dominant one keeps them from doing it or there's some sort of hormonal thing going on. Like there's lots of different hypotheses about how that could happen. And there is evidence from the literature where out west where they were able to watch birds, it was Rios, uh, intensively monitor birds. There was strong evidence from some of that work that a few of the individuals were doing a large, a large portion of the, the breeding. But that's also in an unhunted population. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that there's longer for that to those dominance hierarchies to take over. It's also wide open. It's easier, mm-hmm. you know, to maintain the eye contact. There's a lot of, so I guess I'm getting on a, on a uh, sidebar diatribe on that, but the point is it's more complex than just saying yes or no. Yeah. But we have a line of evidence to suggest well, a lot of them actually have the capability of breeding, which makes me a little less concerned about worrying mm-hmm. about which one you shoot. You know, I, I think I think one of my favorite things about y'all is you, you've said this like three times now. The the literature shows, mm-hmm. right? There's strong evidence for. You don't speak in absolutes almost ever. I don't think I've ever heard it, and I think that's really important and, and encouraging if you tie it in with the amount of the volume of turkey research that you're that you're saying is is going on right now because we we need to contest ideas. Yeah. That we need to challenge. That is the the scientific model is building a hypothesis, mm-hmm. gathering data, seeing if it's supported, tweaking it, uh, peer review of, of that same data. And you know, we used to think only mature deer, mature bucks bred does. Mm-hmm. And then we did studies and we realized, oh, it's right. Genetically, that, oh wow, based the bar. Here's what other people don't realize either. I have some ideas about how things work. Uh-huh. I don't like when it gets smashed. Yeah. If, I mean, nobody likes yeah. that. But I realize that it's our role as scientists to be skeptical, mm-hmm. question everything, don't mm-hmm. accept the you know things that they are just you know. 
we we are burdened with with evidence, right? You continually revise your position based on evidence, and uh, sometimes the evidence takes a turn. Like we have a big change in technology, or somebody comes up with a crazy idea, and then you get a new flush of data. It's like wow. I was way off. So uh, the other problem is what's happening in the Panhandle of Florida is different than what's mm-hmm. happening in Western North Carolina. Right. Is different than what's happening in Oklahoma. Right. Is different than what's in, you know we can go on and on. Or you know we have differences in relative. Uh, the, the relative contribution of different factors, which gets even more muddy, and then we have imperfect data. So it's really hard to have certainty about anything when you start looking at it like that. It's like we, there's, you know, we don't, even when you were asking about the biases of pulp imprinting, mm-hmm. absolutely it has some biases. I'm less worried about it after reading Joe Hutto's book, because he was like, man, they're just innately turkeys. They didn't have to do anything. They just, they just wired. They just yeah. knew how to be turkeys, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Like how did how did they know? Yeah. So that's like a you know if we go start going further and it's like okay well did they learn that? Obviously they didn't learn it from mama. Right. So that means it's innate. But how intrinsic is it? How innate? Mm-hmm. So then I'm like okay well what if what if mama learned when she was young to do things a certain way, well then she, well she then, Mm -hmm. you know, when she has babies, you know, take her pulps and Mm -hmm. do the same kinds of things, would you start to see them diverge over generation? I mean, there's all kinds of really cool stuff and it could be really, this is where I get frustrated because I have ideas like that and then people are like, yeah, but how are we going to apply that? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, if you go over generations where they had never had anything good, mm-hmm. well, that could make a big difference in how they respond to th- making things really good, right? Yeah. You might have multiple generations before they catch up. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's just all kinds of, of cool stuff like that, but, uh, you know, the, the main thing is that I want people to understand we're trying to get great data to make as many targets as we can make Mm-hmm. And uh, there are limitations as always, and there's also a lot of different people and lots of different ideas on what's going on, and that is good. I don't agree with lots of the other scientists on many aspects of it. That's as it should be, right? Yeah. I mean, that there should be people, and and that, and that's really important. We ought to be able to, and I, and we do yeah. often share differences of opinion, different hypotheses, and. Sometimes you even see where one side, you know, I'm hesitating to say sides, but you've got two people, there's going to be two sides, right? Yeah. So you have one that thinks, oh, things are this way, and that inspires the other one to go gather data. Right. And it, you know, it's not like a vendetta thing, but it's like you're trying to strengthen in your That's position. Right. And what happens is uh, sometimes. And, and Will and I do this between just the two of us. I was telling you earlier, it's kind of funny because we pick on each other sometimes about it. Um, you, you often gather data think with, with this hypothesis in, in mind, and then you get the data and it's like, 
Yeah, I was wrong. I completely missed on that one. And then, then what happened, what should happen, is now I revise my point of view on it. Mm-hmm. Every time I collect another bit of data, it happens again. So I, I think that's that's the fun part for me. It's like, you know, the, you thought that Galbor was going to do this, and then he didn't. Yeah. Now and it makes why. you appreciate him, right? Yeah. And then it's like, okay, well, next time he's going to do this, and then go in and he, he messes you up again. And it may be because it wasn't the same guy or it may be because he's he's just good or you're yeah. not. Yeah. You know. Uh, or he just decides he's gonna do something different that day. So there's a lot of stuff going on that makes you appreciate it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That, that's one thing I've learned a lot about turkeys from all this research and I'm appreciating them more and more. Um, let me tell you what, put a transmitter on a turkey and then go look at the data. Mm-hmm. I've been doing that a while, and every time I get get it back, it's like, wow, okay, wait a minute. That is not what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. It's just like, it's a ever-learning process, and that's what's fun about it for me, why I'm in the role that I am. Grew up hunting and fishing and loving it, and now I get to study it for a living, and it's cool. I don't know if I even, I don't even remember what your question was. Well, the good news is, I don't either. And so <laughs> we went down. So I tell people all the time we should have been named something like the Rabbit Hole Podcast because we just go down rabbit holes. And I, and I love it. Turkey hole. Yeah, turkey hole. There you go. Um, I almost made a very poor taste joke. But uh, <laughs> so I have, I have a question for you. You have a lot of admiration for the wild turkey, and this just popped into my mind a moment ago. And this is going to put you, this is going to put you squarely at odds between being a scientist and, and a hunter, mm-hmm. perhaps. Are turkeys smart, or are they so dumb they're chaotic? <laughs> well, they are, there's no question that they're weird. Okay. But I think they are pretty darn smart. Really? See, I had you pegged for they're so dumb they're, they're, they're chaotic. No. You know, the more I try to understand them, the more I appreciate really? some of the subtleties. And uh, if you read that book too, yeah. he's talking about, about his relationship. Yeah. Uh, well, just for the listeners or whoever, you'll start to really appreciate that they have personalities and uh-huh. they, you know, it's what it's a, I guess what does smart mean? Does that mean they have strong instincts and innate behavior, uh-huh. or does it mean they have the capability to problem solve? Like we, you know, it's hard to discern which yeah. one of those, but they are definitely weary. Yeah. Like they, it is amazing the gauntlet they run, and you know it's it's uh, they do things that surprise me a lot. I sit, I land squarely on that. I feel like they're so X's and O oriented. They just they're. I don't think they're intelligent. Like I don't think they they critically think about things. Um, you know, people are like oh that was a smart bird. He walked in and just something triggered him and he left. And I'm like. Was he smart or like what you said? Is he just his default is everything's going to kill me? If so, if something even looks remotely off, he's out of there. Well, then you know I have a good friend and, and hunting mentor to some degree in North Carolina, and he's a really good storyteller. Also, he is a game bird biologist as well, obsessed with turkey hunting. Yeah, and uh, he likes to tell us the story about how he got knot holed. Okay. 
So I'll tell a little brief. I can't do it justice. Okay. But I'll try to try to. Essentially, he is hunting this turkey, and he has finally, after several attempts, mm-hmm. you know, he's on. According to him, he's on the same turkey morning after morning. We could debate, it, have a different <laughs> debate over whether or not that's the case, but we'll just, for the sake of argument, assume it is. Yeah. He's on the same bird. He's been hunting it hard. He's a very good hunter. Yeah. And and uh, he's very aggressive in terms of his space use as a hunter, but he's uh, tends to be a little more reserved on his use of sound. Okay. So, but he's like an old school get it he gets it done a lot mm-hmm. on public land a lot too anyway he's telling this story he's got this this turkey and it's just been giving him the slip and he's doing this and that and it seems like he's a, two steps ahead of him every time he does anything can't figure it out and he finally gets on this bird and the bird comes in and he has a this big this nice log this tree that's falling over it's a log kind of laying horizontal sort of at a at an angle and he waits for the turkey to to walk behind mm-hmm. this log that he is going to block his view so that he can get position because mm-hmm. he's not pointing just right. And he waits on him to get behind that log, and as soon as he gets his eyes, you know, uh, behind it, he moves his gun, and he said the turkey immediately stuck his head up and looked at him through a knot hole in that stump or the log yeah. and saw him and flushed out of there and he didn't get to shoot it. And then he always says, yeah, he not hold me. Oh my God. The turkey not hold me. But you know, it's like that. Was that intelligent or just weary? But he apparently knew that hole was there uh-huh. and he saw like he detected that there was something going on on the other side of this yeah. log. and. He stuck. He literally moved his head up so he could see through that hole to not hold it down, and he didn't get the turkey. <laughs> but then you, you know, you can debate over whether or not that's knowledge or yeah, or you know, the fact that if they weren't so weary that everything wants to eat them, they wouldn't survive. Yeah, a lot of them don't anyway. Right. So uh, yeah. Well, you, you you were talking that bottom that you were in today. Yeah, Parker McDonald last week killed that that double bearded tom down there. That bird, they went down on the roost. They got really aggressive, like I told them to, down there in that bottom. Which that's kind of their style too. I'm not giving them credit. Mm-hmm. I need to give them credit for killing the bird. Um, the bird flew across to a tree behind them, gobbled, looking down, flew to another tree, flew to another tree, flew to another tree before it ultimately came down. That bird, for whatever reason, probably because I've been terrorizing it for the last couple of years, has no. I'm educated. He, that implies that it is intelligent. Exactly. I know. I know. That's where I end up yeah, arguing. Gain, like, gaining knowledge and remembering. Uh-huh. And it went, it went, and it actually, the fourth, to give Parker credit, the fourth one, it actually didn't see what it wanted to and left. He got aggressive with his calling, and he thinks that he thought the bird, he missed the bird, that he was just missing what it was there. And he pitched down literally to almost the end of his gun and, and you know, killed it right there. Um, but is that intelligent, or is that just... X's and O's that lead to I need to see what I'm looking at before I fly down to it. You know, I mean, I don't know. I, I not all of them do that. No, <laughs> no. It's um, I even wonder if we make. This is something that I told Benjamin. I wonder if we make similar enough noises to even get credit as calling in birds. 
because you know they eat around a spectrum that, that we don't, right? We think we're making turkey noises, but are we missing enough on the front and the bottom of that spectrum that mm-hmm. we can't hear to where we even deserve are we making turkey enough noises to, to say we're calling in a turkey or just catching him in a pattern of poor recognition? Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. I think we have pretty strong evidence that some of us are talking turkey. <laughs> <laughs> you, you definitely have it because you were talking turkey all morning. Well, that, so I, I got in a situation where I was between a ham and, and, and uh, the three amigos, and it almost ended one of them's life. But yeah. I would have had to kill two at once, which would have been illegal since I've already killed one. Oh, that's why you didn't do that. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I meant to ask you that when you told that story. I, did, I forgot you killed one. I was like, man, yeah. he's really, he's really. Yeah. So. Uh, that's why I should have gone with you. <laughs> when you killed him, <laughs> there were multiple times where I thought in a death. Yeah. It's gonna happen this morning. Nice. I want to hear so, my. Well, go for it. Let's talk about this knowledge thing for a minute. Go. Cool. Floor is yours. So. I've just been. This is, these are the kinds of things that I think really deeply about, uh-huh. and I think it is interesting. But one of the one of the things that I have wondered about is how they decide what to eat. Mm-hmm. How much discrimination is there between different items? And, uh, when I was reading about the pole imprinting, it became apparent that a lot of they have a lot of innate behaviors mm-hmm. that also seem to uh, seem to be polished by developed learning mm-hmm. and if you re- read I'm, I feel like I'm selling Jehoto's book right now uh, but if you read about it he talks about this some with the insect selection and they just innately know not to eat some things really like some bugs which you know like the lover glass grasshopper mm-hmm. uh, there are a couple of insects uh you know that that would be toxic to them, and they just know not. They they just ignore them. Like they're not even a thing. Like they'll eat it. They they relish centipedes and hate millipedes. Really? Right. You know he's talking about stuff yeah. like that, and then I start thinking about it, and then he starts describing. Also, they when they're really little, they they uh, don't eat many grasshoppers. And when they do eat them, they'll really take take careful or take care to make sure it's dead before they start trying to consume it. Like they really get after it, trying to. And I just wonder. It, it implies that there's some sort of learning process, and you know that they know that's dangerous right now. It's still good. But you better 
mm-hmm. you know, avoid it at first, and then they start tink- tinkering around with it, and they know to kill it before they eat it, and then when they get big enough, like that's delicacy now, right? So there's implying some, there, there are lots of examples like that yeah. where they seem to know. The hen this morning, I didn't tell you about this, but I got a picture of uh, some of the huckleberries or the uh, farkleberry, mm-hmm. those bushes that you see in there, they have blueberries on them. Mm-hmm. That hen walked around there and you could, like I could see it on her face. She was walking around while we're literally clucking back and forth. She just repeatedly clucked, just mm-hmm. for like 15 minutes, just cluck, 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 just over and over and over again. And I just doing it with her. She came in doing that and I just was trying to mimic what she was doing and she just kept doing it so I kept doing it. And uh, But she walked around at, at, to every little bush, you know, those farkleberries, and I could see her looking all around in the bush and then she'd see a ripe one and she'd grab it and she'd you know, grab a whole bunch of them right, right there and I was just enamored with her. I couldn't see what it was at first mm-hmm. but then when uh, after things went down, I got up and, and walked through there and I got some images. But she knew that game. She knew which bushes to go to. She knew what to look for. And, you know, it, it just, it's a, that is an interesting question about whether or not they're smart or is that innate? There's all, there seems to be a lot of learning going on because they change how they mm-hmm. deal with things and they know to come back to specific places to get certain things. They, that implied to me that e- either she has an immense knowledge of the landscape and where those resources are or she knows which bushes to go to. Like she, now mm-hmm. is she identifying plants? You know what I'm saying? Like a, yeah, no, I'm with a, you. I just think that's really fascinating. You gonna study that? Is that gonna be inside the scope of the the um, the imprinting study you're gonna do as well to try? If I could get that going, that yeah, that, that's a, that's kind of like I said earlier, pie in the sky project. But yeah. that selection in particular for me is one of those things that I've been sitting on a deer stand or on the side of a tree my entire life. Uh-huh. I was completely enamored with that idea. Like, how do they know what to eat? What are they selecting? Yeah. How do they know? And what you know, what what is driving the decision making? Yeah, it'd be really interesting if you could take birds from an area void of those preferential food sources, allow them to, in their short term memory, forget that that's an option, introduce them to an area where it is an option, and see how. How it's how reactive they are because if it's instinctual, you would assume they'd immediately yeah. start snagging it. You know. Well, that, that's a yeah really good, interesting uh, idea. Another thing that I was going to say about the learning with the polling printing stuff, you can actually, you can start to measure knowledge and, and intelligence. Okay, go on. <laughs> <laughs> We do that with some species, like we've figured out that a bunch of species have a perception of self, for instance. Okay. Like an elephant, if you put a mirror in it, it knows it's the elephant in the mirror. That has a perception of self. It'll start like looking to see what's in it, caught in its teeth, and like it starts doing human-like things that we associate with us. 
uh, but that's a you know we have we have devised ways to measure intelligence in species. We know that a lot of corvids, you know, crows, uh, they can problem solve and they can figure out how to use tools to mm-hmm. problem solve. There's lots of cool videos on that kind of stuff. We have experimental ways to measure intelligence like that. We can actually put it into context, like how smart is it compared to other species. So uh, I, I would definitely be trying to do that kind of work because I think that it is fascinating and I'd love to settle this with the hunters. You heard a lot of people's feelings. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, and I'm one of them. Like, just the idea of what you just said, like... I'm even I'm challenging my own thought here. I'm, I fancy myself someone who can challenge his own thoughts without you know mm-hmm. too much self detriment. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, am I convincing myself they're so stupid because I need to think that I'm not getting outsmarted by something the brain the size of a pea, right? Well, which like, is worse? I, I think the brain <laughs> the size of a pea. I mean, I, I don't know, man. I just what is it? Would it be better that they're so smart that that's why they keep outsmarting you? Yeah. Or I think they're, so. they're so dumb that you just can't get past that weary. I think it's. I think if I'm being outsmarted, truly chess match by something the brain the size of a pea, I, I don't know that I can recover from that. <laughs> like that, that might be soul crushing. I mean, you know, I don't know. So you'd rather be? Uh, they're too weary for you. Yeah, because my phrase, my phrase to people all the time. And this is my current belief. I'm subject to change, but you know, turkeys are dumb. Stupidity causes, creates chaos. Chaos create, creates opportunity. Right. The same reason why a bird will, you know, saw my co-host and standing in the road in blue jeans and, and a black t-shirt, ran down the road, puffed up, right to the point where there was no return before he realized it. Right. Excellent vision. But he's dumb, right? But he was just caught up in that mood, right? And so it's the same reason why potentially that bird knew that knot pole was there and wanted to see what was on the other side. You know, was that smart or was that just that chaos factor that you're just rolling a dice until you get a certain response? Well, it, I think you could appreciate either one, right? Sure. Like with the knot hole thing, either it knows its environment so well that uh-huh. it knew that it could look through that knot hole, which yeah. is pretty impressive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, it knows from previous experience that sometimes there's knot holes and it recognized that that knot hole would allow it to solve a problem, mm-hmm. which is also pretty cool. Yeah, no. Like, I don't, I can't reconcile what which of those that is, but I'm still impressed by it and it's an awesome story. <laughs> I think, I think I'm almost a little worried, and this is going to sound really silly at first, but hear me out. I'm almost a little worried with the amount of research we're doing right now because I don't want... The era, the the aura of mystique around the wild turkey to disappear, mm-hmm. because like there's a part of me that wants it to be this thing that we can only settle around a campfire with a bunch of beer, right? It's where well, it, you can't settle with is the problem. Yeah, <laughs> but you know everybody everybody's okay having their own opinion in those in those instances. But like I feel like with deer, I feel like we know everything there is to know about deer at this point. Yeah, that's that's definitely not true, but we definitely know a lot about them. What? What don't we know about a whitetail that we need to know? Well, I think we know enough to manage them very efficiently. Okay, you know what? You're probably I, I can yeah, fair. That's true. So, but in terms of fully understanding a lot of their biology and ecology is I think uh, we're far from that. 
<clears throat> again, one thing I've worked a lot on with whitetails that has just been a fascination and a centerpiece of a lot of my work is on diet selection. And I had a master's student, he's now a professor at Texas A&M, uh, but he worked with, his, with me on his master's and Bronson Strickland as well at Mississippi State. And we devised an experiment to measure diet selection of we had uh, 15 or 16 food plot forages. Mm -hmm. We selected them because it's things that people plant a lot, but we designed it in an experimental design so that we could essentially change the uh, distribution of nutrients in the plots and then measure how they selected it based on that. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we came up, what we've, what we figured out from that experiment was kind of shocking to me is that they kind of have this this uh, upper threshold where they can't exceed nutrient. Mm -hmm. Like they get too much of a nutrient mm -hmm. and it becomes toxic. There are some nutrients that that can happen with. Some of them are relatively, or some, some of them are the usual candidates, we'll just say, mm -hmm. uh, that that happens with, but it could happen with a bunch of nutrients. We don't think about that very much. We're, at least for me, growing up, I always thought they were eating to maximize the intake of nutrients. Right. And I just have, that has pervasively right. uh, affected the, my view on diet selection. That they're trying to maximize ener you know, energy gain or protein gain or whatever. I had not been considering that they also need to minimize risk of toxicity. Yeah. So, one of the things that came from that experiment was not only do they, do they have a threshold, they have to meet a minimum requirement of a bunch of things, mm -hmm. but they also have to avoid exceeding the toxicity level on everything. And if you have this plant community that is, happens to be really high, like let's say we have a very low diversity plant community mm -hmm. and the plants available happen to be really high in one nutrient, mm -hmm. well, the problem in that circumstance isn't necessarily they can't meet their nutritional demands, it's that they can't meet it without exceeding toxicity of that really abundant thing. Wow. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So now, what we found in that study is that they will actually avoid Mm -hmm. exceeding toxicity even if it means not meeting nutritional requirements and other nutrients. And you think about that. Why would that be? And it makes a lot of sense when you think of it from the perspective of the animal and the yeah. fitness consequences. Going, Getting a toxic level of something will kill you. Assuredly. Right. Yeah. But you can not eat for a while yeah. and be fine. You can deal with a nutrient deficit for quite a while. It's not. It's not a good thing. Right. But it's, it's not nearly strong. as severe right. as as dying from toxicity or being severely, uh, you know, otherwise physiologically affected. Which so it's much more severe consequence. So what we found in that study is that 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 was the the primary. Mm -hmm. driver of what they were selecting and how mm -hmm. and then secondarily they tried to meet the, the next most limited nutrient so basically don't exceed toxicity 
even if it means not meeting your demands, and then secondarily try to maximize those things, those other things, which have, to me kind of fundamentally changed how we were thinking about it. We just yeah. did this a few years ago. Yeah. Like, we've been trying to figure out, like, we know what deer eat, but how that's structured and what's right. most important and then the implications of it. That, it, you know, when you think about the implications, now we're in a situation it's like, oh, that makes sense why they, under all circumstances, their div- diet will always be very diverse. Mm-hmm. They have to... They have to spread it out, yeah. Because they have to mix and match nutrients levels in different plants that vary substantially in their their composition. And it also makes a lot of sense why they wouldn't just eat soybean. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The the idea that they're they're browsing a variety of different things and you don't like even in agricultural landscapes, their diet will consistently still have sometimes a hundred plant species represented in it. Okay, so let's take that that train of thought real quick. You said something that I feel like is a great question to ask you. We know enough about whitetails to very efficiently manage whitetails. Can we yet say the same thing about turkey? I think that we, uh, not to the same degree. Mm -hmm. We've been managing turkeys relatively well. They're still here. Yep, and they almost weren't at one point, which is a monster success. Yeah, we restored them. Those... You know, people should be commended for those efforts. Mm-hmm. You know, we the love at Williams. We have turkeys because of that, mm-hmm. and it also stems from hunters. Right. So everybody, I, sometimes I get called an anti-hunter for some reason. <laughs> and it's like, come on, guys. Yeah. I'm out there first of all in your honey hole. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Chasing turkeys around. I'm here dedicating my life to it because of that, and also. Uh, very commonly try to make sure that everybody understands that a lot of our game species are flourishing because of hunters. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And a lot of the money that's funding the engine is yeah. coming from hunters. So let's just go and put that to bed. That is a critical part of conservation mm-hmm. and, it, and it's widely acknowledged. Uh, but what you know, we thought we were way better at it than we are, apparently, because now we've got a bunch of places where we're really concerned, and we've got some hypotheses on why. But man, I don't know why. I know one. There's a common thread that always seems to show its ugly face, and it's not a predator. <laughs> <laughs> Am I safe to say the habitat is yeah. all? It, it, it is a part of every single one. Yeah. And it's probably, the, you know, we, another way to look at this is we have proximate and ultimate yeah. things going on here. And if you have a situation where predation is really high, it's usually not because of predators. Mm-hmm. And that hurts people's feelings to hear that but somebody if you make if you make hens nest in a place where they're exposed predation will be higher right yep so that's a habitat problem that is the ultimate cause of that it's not the predator Mm -hmm. so that doesn't mean that predators can't be a problem in some Mm contexts, and that 
predator control couldn't be a part of the solution. But usually, habitat is the root of what's the problem. The same applies to hunting. If we're harvesting too many animals, obviously, if if everybody that turkey hunts came to Florida and everybody killed one and we increased the harvest 10 times mm-hmm. what it is, yeah, that could co- cause problems. Right. But, you know, a lot of what we're seeing, if, if we're hunting is an issue, it's a symptom of productivity because we know from several studies now that habitat is a big problem. Ubiquitously across the landscape, Florida doesn't have a lot of the indicators, right? And then you're like, why? Well, one of the reasons is probably because we're the fire capital of the world. So, you know, we're kind of tying it back into those early conversations. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's probably one symptom of being the fire capital. Not all of the agencies are using fire to make more turkeys. But that is a consequence of right. using more fire right. than anywhere else. Is we probably have a lot more nesting and brooding cover that's coming from yeah. that, and our productivity is higher. Even though we harvest a lot of birds in the state, I forgot what the totals are, but uh, we harvest a lot of birds and we sustain that pressure. You know, and uh, it's probably because we have a product, relatively productive turkey population in a lot of places. And a lot of, you know, the, if you're hearing quail on game lands, I mean, that doesn't happen in many places. Right. That's an artifact of fire management, principally. So, you know, when we're talking about mismanaging and all that stuff, you can also look at it that way. It's like, well, okay, habitat is a, a root cause that we see symptoms affect that, that are caused by, mm-hmm. by that. So if we have poor productivity, it magnifies the role hunting has, it magnifies the role that predators have, it magnifies the role that disease has in populations, but they are a root, it rooted in habitat and, and uh, how that's affecting productivity. So, you know, I don't know where I was going with that, but habitat is the dollars. It feels like if you could wave a magic wand and change something, you would immediately introduce fire fire to the landscape on a on a regular basis. I think it might have been before we hit go. In Florida, usually yeah. fire is yeah. a big part of the way the whatever wherever you're at, right. fire was historically a big part of the way that that system mm-hmm. functioned. And turkeys were gobbling for miles in every direction, as Bartram said. I'm so glad you said that. I was going to say it. I love that. I love that. Yeah. The idea of that is just like... I need that. I do too. I need it. I'd be a way better person. Yeah. Oh, I would. I would. <laughs> I would not lament it. I would be very excited about that. So, with that, you know, the whole landscape was wide open because mm-hmm. of fire principally, mm-hmm. and you can argue over whether that was lightning or native who could, it doesn't matter. Right. Fire kept the landscape like that. Turkeys flourished in that, mm-hmm. and you know that was also before that was widespread. What like it, what was it at the turn of the uh, 
think it was the late, late 1800s when when uh, steel traps became widely available. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we can make arguments about that. It's like the whole landscape was nesting in Rudicover. Mm-hmm. And uh, right after fire is where everybody strutted. So we've got this landscape that is made to make turkeys. Yeah. And, and quail. And they, yeah, yeah. The quail. And they're they flourished at that time. So fire, especially in Florida and in the South, just in general, is definitely a big part of the solution. But another big part of it is getting rid of grass. <laughs> so I don't know which wand I would, I would, uh, I would wave probably over both of those problems. <laughs> so go listen to our episode on yeah. what has changed if you want to learn more about grass because I got a feeling that that one's going to be an eye opener for some people I I hope every episode is an eye opener for someone I think there's a lot of need for for an exchange of ideas right I mean that's that's the currency of change is the exchange Mm -hmm. of ideas Um, along those lines I am running up before on time I need to go run some errands but I want to give you an opportunity Um, everybody who's listened to this podcast series up to this point knows we're raising money for you yeah um, I really appreciate that that's the only way I can do some of this stuff yeah I, a lot of my money is coming through that and I don't make anything off of it I just get more work because of it well and I want to I want to push people especially my, my listeners who are listening to this right now uh, in our Patreon group we talk a lot about advocacy this time of year deer hunting you know we're on that post side of deer hunting there's nothing to be done. We've recognized issues throughout the year. Typically, frustrations are at a, at a peak because of whatever we've been doing. And a lot of people don't turkey hunt, thankfully. It you know, creates opportunity for people like you and I to go out and do it. But we do have this conversation every year in the spring of what can we do to get involved, right? Mm-hmm. And I hear all the time from people, I don't have time to drive to Panama City. I don't have time to drive to Miami for these different meetings. One of the ways we can get involved, and it, it impacts both deer, turkey, all of your game species from what we've been talking about, is making sure that people who are on the landscape whose job and livelihood is to help us manage those resources are well-funded. And so if you're listening to this, um, there's a link in the show notes to the Wild Turkey and Associated Wildlife Fund. Did I get that right? Yep, I believe so. Yeah, got it. Uh, go click on that link. We're doing a giveaway. We're going to give away a bunch of calls to a winner at the end of April. We're going to extend this through the end of April. We're going to cut it off mid-April, but as you guys know, the shirts are taking a little longer to get get rolling. Um, And I want to give everybody an opportunity to get in on any way they want to support. But if you donate dollar for dollar to the fund, we're going to enter you into that drawing. You can go to Honeycomb Custom Calls and order the three-pack collaborative uh, pack that we have. It's in the show notes as well. I will add, I know one of those... Uh, sweet talks at the end this yeah. morning. Yeah, she, she was about it. I gotta tell you, that's one of my favorite things. <laughs> when people when people tell me those calls actually work, because yeah. like you know, I I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of wanted I, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about that because I kind of want to make my own call and then yeah, and then uh, kill a time with it. Yeah, that's like a lifetime. We should talk about that. Yeah. I know I, I've got resources for you. Yeah, but I don't want to interrupt. <laughs> it's fine. Anyway. It's fine. So, uh, click in the show notes. No matter how you want to go about it, I can't encourage you guys enough to put in there because every dollar you put towards that fund, you're getting you're getting a, a much higher return than you are if you're giving to 
uh, a lot of other areas. And you know where the money's coming from because you've heard Marcus talk about it. You can listen to his podcast. Again, in the show notes, I make this easy for everybody. If you're driving, pull off to the side of the road, swipe up. All of these show notes are right there for you. Um, I can't thank you enough for coming over and chatting with me for several hours. I don't oftentimes get to talk to my guests face-to-face. Yeah. No, I appreciate all the support. Yeah. You know, putting on... Put me on a couple of turkeys this morning. I couldn't get it done, but it's because I uh, I could have shot a Jake in the face, yeah, or uh, taken over my bag limit. I chose not to do either. <laughs> it wasn't for lack of uh, opportunity. Opportunity, yeah. So well, but I, I enjoyed uh, being there and being a part of it and thinking through things and got some ideas from it. So awesome, awesome. <laughs> but really appreciate all the support. spread out on a tiny island that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.